If you have your Bible, uh, turn to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. It's in the Old Testament. We're in the series Rebuilding Life Tools from Ezra, Nehemiah. And one of the things that I love about this passage that we're looking at today is that the wall that was rebuilt around Jerusalem is really secondary to the story. I mean, it's the, it's the main thing going on, but it's not the most important thing going on. The most important thing is not the wall, but the God whose hand oversaw the building of it. And so we read in Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, uh, these words. The wall was completed in 52 days. On the 25th day of the month Elul, when all our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were intimidated and lost their confidence, for they realized that this task had been accomplished by our God. Now you think about that. The rebuilding of this ancient wall, this is 2,500 years ago or so, this ancient wall of Jerusalem was done in, in uh, 52 days. When was the last government project that was completed in 52 days? It might have been 2,500 years ago. You know, today I'm not sure if you can get a pothole filled in 52 days. But back then they rebuilt an entire city wall. And from a human perspective, this is an absolutely amazing testimony of good leadership. Nehemiah did an incredible thing, and I call his methodology here the Nehemiah method because uh, it's just a fantastic methodology of getting anything done. These days you have all these books, these self-help books and, and productivity books on getting things done. There's websites, there's subscriptions you can buy, software you can buy on getting things done. One is called GTD, Getting Things Done. Uh, there's things like the Pomodoro Technique. There's things like the Eisenhower Matrix. All these wonderful tools to get things done. But I don't think you'll find anything better than what Nehemiah did in Nehemiah's book. And uh, here's essentially what he did. I just call it the Nehemiah method of getting things done. Number one, he assessed the situation honestly. And secondly, he prayed. He prayed for wisdom. He prayed for resources. He prayed for success. Number three... Then he scheduled out his actions very wisely. The timing of when to do what is a very important thing. And so you need to be a person of prayer to get that timing exactly right. And then he included others. He included four groups of people. The power brokers, those are the people that could either help him get things done or completely stop him. He included the resourcers, the people that had all the resources he needed. He included his inner circle, his trusted leaders, and then anyone else who's going to have anything to do with this project. So he included others, and then finally he just did the plan. He implemented the plan. That was all uh, written out. All of it was ready to go. He simply put it into action. He put it in action in strategic order. He put key leaders in visible places as a as a sign to other people that this is the time to really get to work. And then he put people to work where they were personally vested, much like spiritual gifts. If you're gifted a certain way, it is best for you to minister along that way because that's how God has vested you. And so he implemented his plan, and finally he knew that he would have opponents. 
who would come up and, and act in an adversarial way toward him and try to stop him. And so he was ready for that. And once they began to jump in and try to interfere with the entire plan, he handled them appropriately. He didn't let their anger or their ridicule or their apathy or their criticisms detract him or distract him from doing what he needed to do. But instead, he persevered. He kept on praying. He kept on working. He kept on encouraging. He kept on guarding. He kept on leading. He kept on planning as things might change here and there. And he did it all with a very humble attitude. Now, if you follow this plan, you'll be able to get just about anything done that you need to get done. An atheist could follow these principles and get things done. Because these are simply spiritual laws that are out there that God has made available for everyone to use. Like the physical laws of the universe. We know in science, we all share the same laws of gravity. I'm grateful for that. Uh, you know, otherwise we'd all be floating around and it would be very difficult to have church, you know. Um, but we have physical laws of the universe that anyone, a believer or an unbeliever, can, can use. And these laws are like that. And so you can get things done if you follow this. So from a human perspective, Nehemiah was incredibly effective. I mean, just an absolutely tremendous leader of people and able to get things done. In fact, he was so effective that the completion of this major project in such a short amount of time led to only one conclusion. Something more than human is happening here. There had to have been some divine intervention going on. And of course there was. There was divine intervention. There had been divine intervention. I mean, and throughout the entire book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and you know that, uh, that these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, were originally one book. Throughout the entire book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we keep on hearing things like God was with them. God's favor was upon them. It's as if God was smiling upon them and they were going to be able to accomplish this, these great tasks of returning to Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the wall, all of these things. And so you had all of this universal acknowledgement that God himself was assisting in these projects. And let me ask you a question. Do you perceive in your life that God is assisting you. Do you perceive that? That God is there helping you day by day? I've got news for you if you don't. God is there. He is helping you. Without God, you can do nothing. <clears throat> but whether you recognize Him at work is another question. And so it's important for us to recognize the hand of God at work. Now, here's the amazing thing with this project to rebuild Jerusalem's walls. Not only did a godly man like Nehemiah perceive God was at work, but so did God's enemies. They knew it too. And that's what I personally want to see today in my life, in our church, in our community, in our nation. I want to see... Something so amazing that God does that even the opponents of God recognize his intervention in it.
We might have seen something like this on a small scale with the recent vote to make Lubbock a sanctuary city for the unborn. I mean, because never before in the history of our nation has a city the size of our own Lubbock made such a strong statement for life, even overriding the politicians who claimed to be pro-life but then voted for death. But we got it done anyway. How did we get that done? God's hand was upon us. Okay? Now, do the advocates of death also perceive the hand of God? I don't know. Probably not. But wouldn't it be amazing if the very opponents of God were the ones who also said, God is at work there? Wouldn't it be amazing if God so moved in our church or so moved in our city that even atheists came out and said, God is at work here? I think that would be absolutely Amazing, and that's exactly what happened in Nehemiah's day. God's opponents believed that God was working to oppose them. Think about that statement. I mean, think about the idea of being an opponent of God. You know that you failed to stop this great work of God, and you know that it is because God himself directly opposed you, And yet you still oppose God and his work. Think about how illogical that is. Why do people oppose God when they see that he's at work? Now, most people that have opposed God when they see he's at work uh, that I've seen in my life are Christians. I've had Christians say before to me, I know God says this. I know God wants me to do this, but I'm going to go this other direction. And I think that's such a dangerous thing, to knowingly oppose the will of God. Should not people at least heed the warning of Gamaliel, the Pharisee, in Acts chapter 5, when Peter and the apostles were being uh, oppressed And Gamaliel met with the Sanhedrin, and Gamaliel said to the ruling leaders there these words. He said, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. Gamaliel at least says, This might be of God. Leave it alone. But you have people, on the other hand, who acknowledge that this thing that's happening is of God, and yet I'm going to oppose it. It is completely illogical to acknowledge God and yet continue to oppose Him. It makes no sense, but you know what? It's not about sense at that point. It's not about logic at that point. It is about the condition of the human heart. A heart that is given over to unbelief is so stubbornly set against God that it will continue to oppose Him even in the face of absolute and certain defeat.
Think about Pharaoh and the Exodus event. Even after the Nile River turned to blood, and after there was a plague of frogs, and a plague of lice, and a plague of flies, and a plague of pestilence among the livestock, and a plague of boils on the skin, and a plague of hail and fire, and a plague of locusts, and a plague of darkness for three days, and even the very death of the firstborn of every living thing in Egypt, except for that which was covered by the blood of the Lamb. Even after all of that, Pharaoh sent his army to pursue and try to kill the people who belonged to the God who caused all of that to happen to him. It's not about having common sense. It's about the human heart. There's no sense in that. There's no logic in that. It's about an unbelieving heart that is given over to oppose the very God who created you, the very God at whose mercy you have breath and life, the very God who has appointed the day of your death, that is who you're going to oppose? I find that to be interesting, we'll say. I don't know about the condition of the human heart of those who are just given over to oppose God and his people. But I do know this. Scripture says that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I would ask that all of those who would agree that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, would you say amen? Amen. amen. Now, back to Nehemiah. Even though Nehemiah and God's opponents could not distract Nehemiah from building the wall, even though they could not sabotage the building of the wall, even though they could not harm or murder Nehemiah or destroy his reputation, and even though they saw that God himself stood against them until the wall was completed, they did not stop opposing Nehemiah. The threat to Israel as a people, was not over. And that's really at the core of the rebuilding of this wall. It's not just about the rebuilding of a wall or the rebuilding of a temple. It is about the reestablishment of the people of God through whom God would later bring a Messiah. And so the reestablishment of this people of God was very important to God's plan in history. And yet these opponents never stopped. And I want this to be a lesson to you. And it's basically this, that unless and until those who oppose God's plan repent, they will never stop. They will never stop. There will always be adversaries to God's plan. We just have to have more per perseverance than they have. I remember many years ago in the 1980s, my pastor saying to us as a church about the cultural war concerning abortion, he had one concern. Will the church grow tired of fighting the good fight? Will the church grow tired and just give in? Because in the end, if we persevere, we will win. 
But will the church grow tired? So we must have perseverance. Here's what happened to Nehemiah. Okay? You have Nehemiah's adversary, really the adversary of God. His name was Tobiah. He was the main adversary, not the only one, but his name was Tobiah. Tobiah knew that he had lost. He failed to stop the project. It was there for everybody to see. The walls were basically completed. And so, in order to keep on going in his opposition to God, he went after Nehemiah's character. He tried to diminish Nehemiah's standing as a leader among the people. So how did Tobiah try to do this? By using one of the oldest tricks in the books. Gossip and slander. That's how you diminish the standing of God's leader amongst God's people. Tobiah didn't have social media back then, and so he couldn't create a Facebook post you know, ripping Nehemiah. He didn't have email to send a blast out to everyone. He didn't even have a phone to call people and and gossip behind Nehemiah's back. What he did have were letters. So he started a letter-writing campaign. We read in Nehemiah 6, verses 17 and 19, these words. During those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, okay, you're going to have three parties here. You have Tobiah, you have the nobles, and you have Nehemiah. The nobles of, of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. These nobles kept mentioning Tobiah's good deeds to me, Nehemiah writes. And they, the nobles, reported my words to him, to Tobiah. And Tobiah sent letters To intimidate me. Now here's the position. Nehemiah was the governor. He had the office. Okay? But Tobiah had the ear of many important men. And these men, these nobles, they would look to Tobiah for advice. Or they would come to Tobiah with their complaints. And every time they sought out Tobiah, it strengthened Tobiah's position, at least in his own mind. He gained more and more perceived power because people kept giving it to him. And so Tobiah would respond to these requests for advice, or he would respond to these complaints. And this responsiveness from Tobiah back to the nobles made the nobles feel very important. Oh, we have the ear of a very wise man, they said. And so they began to grow in their own importance. And pride was building up in the nobles. Pride was building up in Tobiah's life. And then these nobles, they would go to the governor. They would go to Nehemiah. And they would say, Tobiah says this. And Tobiah says that. But you know what? Nehemiah didn't give any credence to this rumor mill. He didn't give any credence to what they said Tobiah says, whether it was true or not. Why should Nehemiah pay attention to Tobiah? Tobiah had been hindering Nehemiah since day one. And Tobiah had lost. Tobiah was a loser. Why should you pay any attention to someone who constantly loses as they constantly oppose God's plan? Someone who's wrong at every turn. So Nehemiah paid no attention to Tobiah's so-called Advice, But undoubtedly, I believe, Nehemiah would have warned the nobles 
about the danger of listening to a man like Tobiah. A man who lacked character. A man who opposed the very work of God. Instead, those nobles, what they should have done, they should have considered Nehemiah's character. Nehemiah's character was of the highest virtue. Nehemiah had always sought to do the work of God, not oppose the work of God. The nobles should have considered the character of both men and chosen wisely. But instead, they decided to keep playing the gossip game. Telling Tobiah what Nehemiah said. Telling Nehemiah what Tobiah said. All of this gossip and slander only served as more ammunition for Tobiah. So now he could try to threaten and intimidate Nehemiah. The more he felt like the nobles were behind him and not behind Nehemiah, Tobiah could even go back to his old trick of creating rumors in his own mind and sending letters to the king if he wished, saying, Oh, dear king, the governor, Nehemiah, is seeking to depose you. He's seeking to set up his own kingdom. He's seeking to rebel. All of this was fanciful thinking in Tobiah's mind. You see, Tobiah was a wolf in sheep's clothing. All he ever wanted to do was tear things down. So here's the question. Why were so many nobles fooled into thinking that Tobiah was a wise man who wanted the good of everyone? Why were so many fooled into thinking that he was a man who could be trusted? How in the world did Tobiah pull the wool over so many people's eyes? Here's how. Tobiah and his family had intermarried into the families of many important Jewish families. You see, marriage creates bonds that go beyond just the bride and the groom. We know that when a bride and groom get married, they have a bond, hopefully a lifelong bond between them. But it creates more bonds than that. The families of the bride and the groom become bonded as well. They become tied together. For example, when, when our daughter Mindy married Christian Pacheco last year, it created a bond between us, Amy and me, and Christian's parents. Had it not been for this marriage, Amy and I would likely have never even known Christian's parents. But now there's a bond. Now we have an interest in their family. We have an interest in their welfare. We want God's best blessings upon them. There's a bond that exists between us as a couple, us as a family, and them as a couple and as a family. That's what marriage does. It creates multiple bonds. And so Nehemiah's adversary, Tobiah, had a family with multiple marriages to many Israelites. Now, the word Tobiah, it's a Jewish name. And so we we would be led to think that he was a Jewish man. In fact, he was was probably the grandson, maybe the great-grandson of a different Tobiah listed in in, uh, Ezra chapter 2, verse 60. That Tobiah 
was excluded from the people of Israel. Why? Because that Tobiah could not prove his genealogical ties. And if that's the case, then maybe that explains some of the enmity between Tobiah and the people of God. Maybe that's why he had so much hatred and was trying to destroy everything. But you know, just because Tobiah had a Jewish name doesn't mean he was playing for the right team. He wouldn't be the first, and he's certainly not the last person to switch sides and support the enemy. And so Tobiah's family intermarried and rec- with, with recognized Israelites. And perhaps he did this intentionally in order to gain influence. We read in verse 18 of Nehemiah 6, For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, since he was a son-in-law of Shechaniah, of the son of Arah, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. And not only that, but we will learn later, in the later chapter, I think it's chapter 13, that he actually, his family actually had a marriage into the high priest family. And so he had a lot of influence because of these marriages, these connections. And all of these connections, combined with Tobiah's constant gossip and slander, it caused some of Nehemiah's support to wane, to be weakened. So what do you do? What do you do if you're someone like Nehemiah? How do you combat that? I mean, how do you stop gossip? How do you stop gossip? You can't. If someone else is going to talk, how can I stop that? How can you stop me from talking about you? You can't. You can't stop gossip. If someone is determined to gossip, and, you're de- and they determine that you're going to be the subject, you can't stop it, unfortunately. You can't stop gossip. It's nearly impossible to stop gossip and other forms of sabotage, and that's what gossip is. It's a form of sabotage. But you can lessen the effects of it. How do you lessen the effects? Successful structures and systems lessens the effects of sabotage. When an organization lacks organizational, stru- organizational structure, or if somehow its structure is deficient in some way, that is where the advocates of chaos can attack. Gossip and slander creates chaos. But chaos is controlled. It's dampened through structure. I'll give you a few examples. World War I. Mustard gas. What's the problem with mustard gas? I mean, mustard gas is very chaotic, right? You launch the mustard gas, and it just goes wherever the wind goes. If the wind shifts, it might actually come back upon the very army that launched the mustard gas attack. However... Mustard gas in a container is, by definition, contained. The structure limits the chaos. Think about publicly traded corporations. Think about the chaos that would result if non-stockholders had a vote in a corporation. Corporations could be destroyed quickly. The same thing might happen in the Southern Baptist Convention. Can you imagine if the opponents of the Southern Baptist Convention had a say in how the convention went? But no, there's a structure there. Only stockholders can vote for the corporation 
And only Southern Baptist churches can control the Southern Baptist Convention because of the structure. Think about a church. Every church has structure. Our church has a structure through church membership. Church membership means something. At the very least, it means that you, if, if you're a member, you are an active part of the very people of God who work together to serve God. Church membership creates structure. And so for Nehemiah, he needed to create some successful structures, some systems, put these in place. And so whether you're talking about a city, a nation, you're talking about a corporation, you're talking about a church, it's always best to have reliable, godly leaders in place. In Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 1, we read this. When the wall had been rebuilt, and I had the doors installed, the gatekeepers, singers, and Levites were appointed. Now, the gatekeepers were usually responsible for guarding the gates of the temple, but now they're put in charge of the city gates because things were still pretty tenuous. And apparently the singers and the Levites were there for backup and also to get ready for the dedication ceremonies that were soon to come. In verse 2, we read this. Then I put my brother Hanani in charge of Jerusalem. Hanani is going to be the mayor. Along with Hananiah, different guy, commander of the fortress, that he's going to be the police chief, because he was a faithful man who feared God more than most. What a wonderful statement. A faithful man who feared God more than most. Wouldn't that be an absolutely fabulous thing for someone to say about you? In verse 3 of chapter 7, we read this. I said to them, do not open the gates of Jerusalem until the sun is hot. And let the doors be shut and secretly fastened while the guards are on duty. Station the citizens of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some at their homes. So everything was set to go. We're only missing one thing in the city. People. You've got to have people. Verses 4 and 5, we read, The city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and no houses had been built yet. Then my God... Put it into my mind to assemble the nobles, officials, and the people to be registered by genealogy. I found the genealogical record of those who came back first, and I found the following written in it. Here's what's going on. Nehemiah needed to essentially use a census to choose new inhabitants for the city that had been rebuilt. And so he found a list of the families that had returned with Zerubbabel. Remember that guy? About a hundred years before. And so the rest of chapter 7, beginning in verse 6, is a republishing of the same list that we read in Ezra chapter 2. And because we read it in Ezra chapter 2 a few weeks ago, we will not read it today. You can go back and watch that video and laugh at me stumble over all those names. Now, on these two lists, Ezra chapter 2, Nehemiah chapter 7, there are some differences. There are a few differences. Some, some of the differences are so minor, they're just names and numbers, and, and they're things like the equivalent today would be instead of uh, someone being named John, he was called Johnny or Jonathan, obviously the same person. There's some of that going on. But there's also some other uh, minor, we'd call them maybe discrepancies, and it's because these two lists are basically 
from two different stages of the same census. You see, neither Zerubbabel, way back 100 years ago, nor Nehemiah at this time, neither one of them wanted to list every single person, and they didn't. But they wanted to provide a basic outline of the returnees. And so there's going to be some differences when you provide an outline. One person will do it one way, another person will do it a different way. It's like two people watching a car accident and giving a report. The two people that watch a car accident, they're going to have a few minor discrepancies, a few minor differences. But each one of them may be telling the absolute truth. In fact, if two witnesses have exactly zero variations in their accounts, then it looks like their stories have been rehearsed. You see, when you have perfect precision in multiple accounts, it actually detracts from the authenticity of the statements. But in Nehemiah chapter 7, you have a list that was written originally 100 years before in Ezra chapter 2. And then, after all of these events, you have the man Ezra himself taking both lists, putting them into a book that we would originally call Ezra Nehemiah. And Ezra, as the author of Ezra Nehemiah, did not see fit to change or tweak either of the lists to match the other one perfectly. No, he put them in even with their differences. And that again leads to the authenticity of the record. Just as a court stenographer might accurately record two different witnesses to a car accident, their statements. That very fact is more evidence to the truthfulness and the reliability of Scripture. And so in this passage, we not only have a continuation of good leadership and good management, but we have most of all the important feature of God himself being behind the scenes, orchestrating things so that his people can be a people once again. And this very people, some 400 plus years later, would give birth to a Messiah whose name was Jesus. And this Jesus lived a life without sin. He died on a cross to pay for our sins. And he rose from the grave to give us eternal life. And if we would do this one little thing, if we would admit that we're sinners and believe that Jesus is Lord and commit to follow him, we can have both of those gifts, forgiveness and eternal life. We can be adopted into his family. It's that simple.